returning to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And he was in the Roman province of Asia during his third missionary journey, most of which about three years was spent in the city of Ephesus. In fact, he's not been back to Jerusalem since the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. We read, and, we, and, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, when we went, when, on the following day, Paul went into the house, please excuse me, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. But they have been, been informed about you, that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, or, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. At that time, an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of people followed after, crying out, Away with him. May the Lord bless and give us a good understanding of his word this morning. This past week, we had the privilege of celebrating the 4th of July, Independence Day. And I'm sure, like many of you, you sat down, you, you cracked open your e-copy of the Declaration of Independence and I was reminded of those 56 men who signed that document, sealing their fate. Each one of them would be wanted men in the eyes of the British. They did it because they believed that all men were created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness, probably some of the most famous words from that document. But among those facts that were attested to by these men against the king of Great Britain was that they were deprived of many cases, in many cases of the benefit of a trial by jury and for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. For the 50th anniversary of the signing in uh, 1826, the three surviving signers, they were all invited by the mayor of Washington, D.C. to come celebrate. Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who was from Maryland, he declined for health reasons. John Adams, he sent a short note of thanks, but declined due to his declined but attributed his absence to his health. Thomas Jefferson was the third and, and, and final person to respond. He was the last one to respond. And after reflecting on the significance of the event, he wrote a letter that was carefully composed back to that mayor, to the city. It included in that letter are these words, for ourselves, let the annual return of this day forever refresh our recollections of these rights and an undiminished devotion to them. As most Americans know, Thomas Jefferson, he died shortly after noon on that July 4th, 1826. And a few hours later, his lifelong friend and sometime rival, John Adams, also died with Jefferson's names on, name on his lips. You know, there are significant events in history, events in history and events in our own lives that have tremendous impact on us, events that we will never forget. These men saw the signing of that document not only as life-changing, but as something that would spark a revolution that went, just out, went beyond just what happened here in America, but it would spark a new age for all the world. And they look back on that often. You know, we read that, uh, we sang the song that we have a freedom. Look and see the power of the cross and the empty grave, and now we're free. And that freedom that those men fought for, we have a greater freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 21, we have an event that had a similar impact on Paul's life, an event that not only changed his life, but it would be something that he would reflect on for the rest of his life. Not only does he look back on this event, but it stirs within him some of the most passionate words that Paul ever wrote. In verse 33, Paul is arrested by the commander of the Roman army garrisoned in Jerusalem. He's arrested because there's a riot going on, and this guy seems to be at the center of it. This guy seems to be the reason for it, and he has done something to set everyone in an uproar. The commander does not know what's going on. He's, he's sure something has happened, so he decides to act now and ask questions later. In this verse, Paul's life changes. He becomes a prisoner of the Roman authorities, and so he will stay for the rest of his life. From now on, the, redder, the letters that he will write, the letters that we call the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians and Philemon and 2 Timothy, we're going to call them the prison epistles. Sometimes Paul's prison imprisonment will be somewhat benign, like when he's under house arrest, and sometimes his imprisonment will be rather stark. His condition will be rather stark, like when he wrote to Timothy. But never again will Paul be free. The book of Acts records five defenses from this point forward, five times when Paul explains his innocence from wrongdoing. 
And then each time the debate escalates. It escalates above the nuances of the law and the debate becomes one about righteousness, about the resurrection from the dead, and most importantly, about Jesus Christ. When the puzzled Roman governor would say, and, and just as a puzzled Roman governor would say, when his accusers stood up, they brought no such accusation against him of such things as I had supposed, but had questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. The story itself is big. It's very big. It starts in Jerusalem. Where you're going to see it move to Caesarea, and it ends in Rome. It includes exciting, exciting events such as nighttime escapes, shipwrecks at sea, backroom political deals, corruption in high places, and when the book of Acts ends, Paul is in Rome awaiting yet another hearing and the outcome of the story still uncertain. From this point, of the story, from this point we have complex characters. We're going to see them, but these people that we read about in these stories, they're not unlike people that we see and meet today. And that probably is one of the most compelling reasons why studying these last few chapters here in the book of Acts is so enticing for me. Over and over again, Paul will present the gospel. The Lord will stand with him and encourage him. Paul will win every argument. He will score the most points, but no one who hears will believe unto salvation. If you look at the book of Acts as a whole, as the progress of evangelism, this is the most barren part of the book. There are not going to be, there, there are going to be many different responses from many different people. Responses that might not be unlike responses that you have experienced in your own life in trying to share the gospel and tell people about Jesus. Some are going to be like the people in Malta who treat Paul with respect. And then we're going to have others like Governor Festus who will say that he's just nuts to believe this religious foolishness. There are going to be some like Felix who are going to try and avoid the issue and push it off. And some like King Agrippa will be almost convinced but stop short of salvation. Some like the priests, they're going to want to argue about religion. And then there are going to be others like the people in the temple that we read about in Acts 21 that are just going to be angry and not even listen at all. And some are going to be like the sailors. They're going to be shipwrecked at sea and they're going to see and experience the blessings of God right before their eyes. And then some like the Jews in Rome, they're going to read the scriptures with blinders on. It's possible it's possible that some of them believe, but from this account, nobody gets saved. There are no clear conversions and no baptisms. Everybody has a different response, but in the end, everybody has the same response. No, not for me. To help us understand Acts chapter 21, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the temple. Because the events that we have... Uh, take place in the temple, and so it's very important. And in an effort to maintain peace in Judea, Herod the Great planned and built not just a temple, but a whole temple mount. It would be an elongated square, about a thousand feet on each side. You can see it's a massive area. The only place that is most comparable on earth today to this 
is St. Peter's Square in Vatican City. It's about a thousand feet from side to side. And when you think about on a, on a day when the people gather, about 300,000 people gather in St. Peter's Square to hear a papal blessing. So that kind of gives you an idea of the expanse of the area on the Temple Mount that we're talking about. The longest colonnade was along the back. This is the back wall here on the west side. That's called Solomon's Porch. You may remember from Acts chapter 3 where Peter was standing back here in Solomon's Porch and he preached. This large outer court out here, you see there's two large outer courts. This is the court of the Gentiles. It's so named because both Jews and Gentiles could go there. And a middle wall divided the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts. And, and the inner courts had nine gates. Go to the next slide. The inner court had nine gates. You'll see there are four on each side, or you see there's four here, there'll be four on the other side, and there's one in front. That one gate in the front, that's the gate beautiful. That's the, the beautiful gate where you've got Corinthian bronze on that door, and Acts chapter 3, before Peter preached in Solomon's porch, that's where the lame man was healed. You see, the Jews were very serious about maintaining the separation. On the middle wall, there were posted signs in Greek and Latin to make sure the Gentiles could read them. And I got to say, they do not say no littering. They do not say no trespassing. They do not say turn off your cell phones. They say no foreigner is to enter within the barrier and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. Oh, and have a nice day in Jerusalem while you're at it. <laughs> so if you were a Jew, and if you were purified under the law, you could go beyond the wall through the, uh, through, through the beautiful gate into the inner courts. Now, the, the, by the way, the lame man was outside of the beautiful gate because being lame, being disabled, he was unable to go further into the temple. So you'll see in the inner courtyard, it's separated, and it's actually separated into three parts. You've got an outer court here, which is called the Court of the Women. And that's because that's as close as a woman could go into the temple. And if you look back in the book of Luke, you read about a woman named Anna. She was a widow, 84 years old, who did not depart the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day, and who, when she saw the infant Jesus carried by Mary at the temple, she told everyone that this is the temple, or this is the infant for the redemption of Israel. That happened in the court of the women, probably in one of these side chambers over here somewhere. Now, if you were a Jew and you were a man, and you were purified under the law, you could go further, and you can go through this gate here into the court of Israel. And the court of Israel is, is, is kind of around this area here, and it wraps around this side as well. You could go into the court of Israel, and if you were a priest, you could go further. You see this barrier here that runs around? This is the court of the priests, and that's where the great altar was set up and so that would set apart the priests from the rest of the men 
Now into the temple building itself was the holy place, and behind the veil was the most holy place. In fact, inside the temple, the whole inside was lined with gold. So let's talk about how Paul found himself in the problem and why he has to defend himself for the rest of the book of Acts. Last week, Tim spoke to us about how Paul was passionate and how he continued to Jerusalem despite the warnings. So Paul heads for Jerusalem. Notice that the writing is in first person plural. We came to Jerusalem and Paul went in with us. First person plural, which means Luke is with them and so you're going to get a very close account of the things that are happening. And in chapter 21, verse 18, they go to meet with James and all the elders. Please don't hurry over that verse in your Bible. Notice the word in verse 18, elders. A few weeks ago, Eric stood here, and he talked about the plurality of leadership in the church, and when the book of Acts opens, the leadership in the church was apostles. Men selected by Jesus Christ, who were a witness to the resurrection, and to whom Christ entrusted a great breadth of authority. The physical authority to do miracles here on earth, and the spiritual authority to bind on earth and bind in heaven, even to the forgiveness of sins. But by this time, Acts chapter 21, the apostles were passing from the scenes. Some were already dead, but none were in Jerusalem. The next generation of church leadership that was not more apostles. It was not men who could forgive your sins. It was not men who could work miracles. And it was not men who were chosen by Christ or ordained. But rather, the next generation of church leadership and the next generation and the generation of church leadership that exists today are elders. In the book of Acts, you start out by reading about the apostles. And then you read about the apostles and elders. And then you read about the elders and apostles. And finally, by Acts chapter 21, it's just the elders. And that's the way we do things here at Redeemer Fellowship. We don't, following the, the instructions and model of the New Testament, we don't look for supernatural signs or ordain, but rather we recognize elders from among the work of the body of believers. Now the Jerusalem well elders, they welcome Paul. Paul comes in, they hear about his journeys, it all sounds very good, they give glory to the Lord, and then they raise a concern they have. There are many Jews who live in Jerusalem who have believed in Jesus as their Messiah. They have believed in Jesus as their Messiah and they continue to worship God according to the, to the, uh, to the God of their father, according to the laws and traditions of Moses. And that was a perfectly right thing to do. But rumors had spread about Paul that he was going about the Hellenistic world, the Greek-speaking world, and he, outside of Judea, and he was telling the Jews there that they should forsake the law and abandon the law, and that was not true. Paul had preached and fought vigorously for the principles that Gentiles coming to faith were not under the law. And you can see from chapter 21, verse 25, that James makes it clear, we're not raising that issue again. Concerning the Gentiles that believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. But Paul was equally insistent of the right of Jews in the exercise of their liberty 
to continue to worship God according to the traditions of the law that God had given them. After all, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was in Derby. He had Timothy circumcised. He was a Jew to the Jews. If you look over in Acts chapter 23 and verse 6, you'll see that when Paul is before the Sanhedrin, he cries out, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. You see, to use the word Pharisee for us is loaded with negative connotation, but for Paul it was a noble thing to be a Pharisee. But these rumors were causing problems. And James, who is a very Jewish guy, wants to make sure that the Jews see Christ Jesus, see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law of Moses and not its, not its destruction. Just as Jesus said, I have, do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so, says James, I have an idea. There are four believers that have taken a vow. Four men. It's the vow of the Nazarite. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. And for a time of the vow, be it a day or a week or a month, however long that vow is, you do not cut your hair. And at the end of the vow, you, you, you shave your head and you burn up the hair. It's a beautiful picture of dedicating a time of your life to the Lord. And your hair is a demonstration of burning up those days as a sacrifice unto God. But there was a whole ceremony involved, and it was, it was very expensive. There were sacrifices you had to buy. It was expensive. So a tradition had developed that a sponsor, so to speak, would pay the expenses of the men that, that had taken this vow as a way of encouragement and support for those believers, or for, for those, those men. And James suggests that Paul become a sponsor. And everybody, by Paul becoming a sponsor, he will be able to join in the ceremony and everybody will be able to see that Paul is not abandoning the law, but rather he walks orderly according to the law. It's a good idea, it's a perfectly right idea, and Paul agrees. But we all know that no good deed goes unpunished. Because when Paul is in the temple, he is in the court of Israel with these men. And they're completing these sacrifices. And while he's in there, he's noticed by some Jews. And now these are Jews who are visiting Jerusalem. They live back in the Roman province of Asia, where Paul had spent the last three years of his missionary journey. These Jews who are in Jerusalem, uh, they, they see Paul in the company of a man named Trophimus. He is a Greek from Ephesus. Paul, they knew Paul. They knew Trophimus. They had seen them together in Ephesus, and, and they had seen them together in Jerusalem, and now they see Paul in the court of Israel where only Jews could go with four other men around him, and they jump to the conclusion, completely wrong, completely unjustified, but here we go, that Paul had the audacity to bring a Greek into within the wall where no Greek could go, and they go ballistic. Men of Israel, help! They cried, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into this temple and has defiled this holy place. Their shouts get attention. The attention turns to commotion. The commotion turns to outrage. The outrage turns to violence. And within minutes, the place is in an uproar. And the crowd, well, they become a lynch mob. And Paul is grabbed, dragged 
out into the court of the Gentiles and then out probably through these, door, these doors over here, out into the court, and imagine the scene as the alarm sounds. Greeks inside the court, the place is defiled, clear the area, secure the walls, and in quick succession, the doors of the middle wall are slammed shut. That event was an event that Paul never forgot. At the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 28, Paul is still talking about it. And it's still vivid in his mind when he, writes, when he wrote the book of Ephesians back to that city in Ephesus. You see, Israel was special to God. God loved the people. But you know, God loves all people. Not, not just Jews. He loves everybody, everywhere. And Paul would later look back on his life and the events that led him to become a prisoner. And, and he, as he wrote that letter to the Ephesians, I imagine that Paul recounted those, those last days as a free man. He would recall his journey to Jerusalem. You know, he stopped in Ephesus, or he stopped in Miletus, and, and the Ephesian elders, again, there's that word elders, come and meet with him. And the tears that they cried as they were together and the, the memories that they probably shared before Paul departed going to Jerusalem. Maybe Trophimus was there with him. Maybe Trophimus went with him on the rest of the journey. He was a friend that Paul cared very much about. We read about him later in, the, in, in, in Timothy, in his letter to Timothy. Imagine Paul sitting down to write the letter to the Ephesians and he reflects on that temple, that huge barrier. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has destroyed the middle wall of separation. You see that middle wall of separation? Well, that was a real wall. That was not just some abstract idea that Paul came up with. That was a real wall that had doors that locked you out and signs that warned you off. The whole complex was a maze of walls that divided people. It divided Jews from Gentiles. It divided men from women. It divided the disabled from the poor. It divided the clergy from the commoners. And most importantly, it divided God from everybody. Paul says that, Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, those walls are gone. For as many of you as were baptized... For as many of you as were baptized in Jesus Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. You know, from this point forward, we're going to be hearing about Paul in chains. And he goes on to say that it's because of the hope of Israel. Paul is now bound with chains for the rest of his life. He is bound with chains because of the hope of Israel. And we are here this morning because of the hope of Israel. If there's anybody here that wants to learn more about that hope of Israel, 
about salvation in Jesus Christ, come see me after the meetings or one of the elders and we'd be happy to talk with you about that. I'm going to close in prayer and Warren, I'll turn it over to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in him as we sang about and the freedom we have in Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. And I, I, I ask that you would just direct our hearts to your Son as we remember him. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.